Amen. Well, welcome everyone. It is good to see all of you here and to have all of you here this morning. I know uh, it's been some time uh, since we've had you know this many in our services, but I know I personally am blessed to see all of your faces and uh, to see some new faces and just uh, thankful we are praising the Lord together um, and rejoicing in Christ together as the body. So um, let's now turn then to uh, pray and seek the Lord before we turn to the word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come, Lord God Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth, the one who reigns over all things, who is God and there is no other. We know that your glory you will not give to another. And so we come and we bless you, the lone and the only God. We bless you, O Lord God. And we praise you, for you are true, and your word is true. And we don't come here this morning to worship as though these things aren't true or real, but we come to worship the God who is and was and always will be. We come to worship our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord and is Lord over all things, King of kings, Lord of lords, the great I am. And so we come blessing your name, seeing you are true in all you do, coming to your word this morning because your word is true. We aren't coming to a word that is dead, but a word that is alive, living and active, and piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of morrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And so we pray, Father, that you would be with every person here, that they would hear your word this morning, and that you would even right now prepare their hearts for your word, that you would... Help them, Father, that they would, that your word would do its work in them. So we come, Father, and we come as those who uh, are not confused over Jesus in a world that is confused over Jesus. We come realizing and saying that you are there and Christ is Lord, Messiah. And so our hope is in Christ this morning. And we pray that as a church, as haven, that our hope would be in Christ this morning. We pray for all of our brothers and sisters throughout this area and throughout the world. We pray that their hope would be in Christ this morning. We pray for our country that you may lead it to hope in Christ this morning. And you may lead the nations that they may hope in Christ. May you turn and lead them to you. May you help your servants Arise and go and take this great commission out here on the streets to our neighbors all around this state, all around this nation and all around the world for your glory. Help us, Father. And be with us now as we go to your word that we, again, our hearts would be readied. May you be with me and give me grace also to rightly divide your true God-inspired, God-breathed word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, well, if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, and John chapter 7, and we will be in verses 25 through 36 as we continue in this Gospel this morning. So a number of years ago, I went on a brief, you know, week-long trip to Macon, Georgia, with my church's youth group. So our goal in going to Macon was to come alongside a number of churches and to go share the gospel from house to house and door to door. So we broke into, you know, these various groups and we went out and did just that throughout the week. We went, you know, intent upon sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't remember how many houses we ended up going to throughout the week. I know it was a good, a good amount. Uh, we were just one church among many other churches joining together uh, to, to take the gospel out. And so we did this throughout the span of the week. But we were resolved to reach as many people as we possibly could with the good news of Christ. Well, one particular visit has stuck with me over these years since then. And so we came to this house and a young man answered the door, likely in college, maybe a little younger than me at the time. And we began talking with him and, and found out that he was, he was Jewish. And so now as I you know, began talking with him about the gospel and why Jesus came and how he came as the true Messiah, fulfilling God's word. You know, I could tell that the man, this young man was listening intently and really getting what I was saying. Now, did, did he believe that day? Well, he didn't believe that day, at least as far as I know. But as we walked away from the, his house, I remember thinking how incredible and gracious it is that God, he has so abundantly shown that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the promised Messiah declared throughout the Old Testament. And I remember praying that this young Jewish man would believe, even as he's being commanded to do by the one who has come to save him, repent and believe the gospel. Well, today our passage, it sets before us a similar question to what this man was wrestling with, which is, who is this man? (laughs) Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is this Christ, is this the Christ who came in fulfillment of God's word? Now, you don't have to wait until the end of this sermon to know the answer to that question or to answer to those questions, the answer is a resounding yes. He is the Christ. He is the promised Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. So if you're wondering how the sermon and where it's going, it's going there because that is the answer. So in light of that, then, let's see the answer and see this in our passage this morning, beginning then with verse 25 here. So as you perhaps 
Remember Jesus, he had said in verse 19 of chapter 7, that none of you keeps the law, why do you seek to kill me? And the, the people, they said, what do you mean? You, are you, uh, you know, um, uh, do you have a demon? I mean, who's trying to kill you? And, and so Jesus answers them, and then we come into our verses this morning. So verse 25, may God work in our hearts at the hearing of God's word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know, you know where he comes from. So, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than these, than this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees, they sent officers then to arrest him. And then Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. As we've been walking through this chapter here in God of John's gospel, it's become plain that the Jews are tired of Jesus. <laughs> so at this point in John chapter 7, even though we still have more to go in the gospel of John, there are only six months, we are only six months away from the cross. So it's very close at this point. So the Feast of Booths would have taken place in September, October, AD 32. And you know, his death, burial, and resurrection would take place in March, April, AD 33. So it's getting close. Now we don't get there in this gospel until chapter 19. But time-wise, the cross is coming and it is coming soon. And the intensity of their desire to kill Jesus is amplified, not with mere words now, but with actual official attempts to arrest Jesus. Now they're starting to try to take action. So immediately here, though, we see, as all this is going on, the people are hearing all these things Jesus is saying, and what are they? The people are confused. 
That is, we see that they are confused over Jesus, or there is a confusion over Jesus. And really, this confusion kind of goes throughout all of these verses, verse 25 through 36. So the people are confused over who this is. Now, as we've walked through this gospel, we have met a number of people along the way. So, so far in this gospel, we have met the Jews, which either were the religious leaders, or the religious leaders were included in that group. And then we've also met the crowds, who really generally aren't aware of what's going on with the Jews. So they can say things like, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you, when the Jews kind of already know that there's a plot out to kill Jesus. And three, we've met the Samaritans, people despised by the Jews, the scum of the earth. And yet we've seen, incredibly, these are the ones that believe in Christ. And so far, the others have not. And then now here, we meet in verse 25, the people of Jerusalem. So who are these people? Well, as native to Jerusalem, these people, they were aware of this plot and of the plot of the Jews. Yet they don't quite know, even so, they don't quite know what to think about Jesus. So they are confused about Jesus. They are wrestling here. Sure, the Jews are trying to kill him and everything. Yet here is this man speaking boldly before everybody Now, remember, he didn't come publicly. Now he is definitely coming in the most public place you can be. And he's doing this before all. And now the Jews aren't doing anything about this. Maybe they know he's really the Christ. Is that what it is? Or maybe not. I don't know. Don't we know where Jesus is from? And where he lives? So, this can't be him? I mean, who is this man? So, confusion, right? You see it? And it continues on. As they, uh, even the Jews hear him say all these things, you know, where I am, you cannot come. And like, what in the world is he talking about? Does this man intend to go? Uh, where does he intend to go that we will not find him? And so, they're just confused. <laughs> just like a lot of people have been throughout the Gospel of John. Again and again, confusion. So how should we view their confusion here? Now, if they were standing right in front of us right now, I think one thing we might do, or might need to do, is respond somewhat apologetically. Or in other words, we may utilize the tool of apologetics. Now, what in the world am I talking about? So this apologetics, uh, it does not mean that we're going around saying, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, I apologize for this, and apologize for this. Apology of old was like a defense. You could even write treaties called an apology. You're defending something. So, here then, apologetics would be giving a defense for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Sounds familiar, familiar, like Peter says. So it's not debating, it's a tool for giving answers to questions or challenges that may arise or have arisen to our faith. So it was was part of what I was doing when I was talking to the young man 
in Georgia, trying to show him and defending the Christian faith, showing him how Christ is the Messiah from the Old Testament. I was giving reasons why Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is not about arguing people into heaven. That's just contrary to what is possible in and of itself. It's an oxymoron, but it's about directing people to faith in Christ. So that's what we might do. We might walk with them through their questions and confusion and because we love them and we want to see them come to faith in Christ. But if we back up, so that's how maybe we would respond. But if we back up and think of you know, even how God sees them here, or even how the Gospel of John is seeing their confusion, we need to think a little bit more then. So how should we view their confusion? Or better, how does God view their confusion at this point? So I want to consider this from two angles. The first being their perspective. So we'll look at their perspective first. So from their perspective, they don't think they have reason enough to say that this is the Christ. Plain enough? Hey, we we know where this man is from. What does he mean? We can't go where he's going and so on. So they are all on the side of, we don't understand this man, so we won't believe. Now let's zoom forward to today. That's where they are. Why do Jews not believe in Jesus now? Well, there's a lot we could say there. Partial hardening, Romans. Well, the reasons that they give aren't really much different from what we are seeing here in the Gospels as well. He didn't come in the way that they had anticipated that he would come. We've seen that already, right? The Messiah would not be divine. We've seen that already too. Christians are mistranslating and misinterpreting the Old Testament. We've seen aspects of that with Jesus and how he's handling things. He wouldn't be resurrected, which we will see that. And so they are still waiting for a person and not the Son of God. That's where they are now. And interestingly, and this is just as an aside, although you know heavily debated among Jewish scholars, there are some today that see credence in a Messiah who dies and is resurrected as well. Yet... In all this, they say Jesus is not their Messiah. So that's, that's their perspective in these verses and what we even see now. But let's look at it at the second angle here. So from God's perspective. So with God's inspired word, the Gospel of John is not sympathetic towards their unbelief. Now, this is from God's perspective, and consider the Old Testament as well. Is God ever sympathetic towards unbelief? No. (laughs) Again and again, what we have seen throughout the Bible and in the Gospel of John is a decrying of unbelief and magnifying of belief. So we saw this with Nicodemus, John 3. 
Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then we see it again and again with the Jews. So Jesus, he says in chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he's not, he's not saying their unbelief is okay. He's not even saying that confusion over him is okay. Different we would, of course, handle it apologetically. Let's, we're seeing this then from God's perspective. How does he view right now unbelief, their unbelief, confusion and all? And so we see it again and again that unbelief is condemned. Even as Jesus, he says, even as he says this, come, believe, and be saved. Right? Doesn't he do that again and again too? They're not believing, but come to me. <laughs> Even when he's, he's explaining why some won't come to him, he's saying, but come and believe in me and you'll have life. Amazing. And so we see this outstretching of mercy again and again. Yet, and even in the face of strong condemnation of unbelief. So they are warned then, And so are you. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe or obey the Son does not have life. But the wrath of God remains on him. God's perspective, even now, in their confusion. So, in there, and perhaps your unbelief, God's wrath remains even as Jesus pleads with them. And he pleads with you that you would come to him and be saved. And that's a lot of mercy going around. You are God's enemy if you don't know Christ, yet he is pursuing you like crazy. <laughs> so whose perspective is right? Which I think you've already gleaned where I'm going with this, but God's is. That's where the Bible lands as well. So Jesus is the Savior of the world. In mercy, he has given you and me and all the Jews, even to today, many evidences and proofs he has shown in the Gospel of John, which I'm not going to walk through them all, which we've seen again and again in the Gospel of John already, but sign after sign, Old Testament theme after Old Testament theme, directing them and you to Jesus, that Jesus is the one fulfilling promise after promise of the Old Testament, that you and they may see that this is indeed the Son of God who has come to save sinners. So condemnation of unbelief, but wow, look at all this mercy everywhere that you may believe. Now, their unbelief, though, and yours you don't know Christ is and their confusion and unbelief is no excuse 
because their unbelief and yours is an outflow of unbelief that began in Genesis chapter 3. Rebellion against the God who did make us, whose word is always true. No doubt, regardless of all the arguments in the world, everybody's saying this, saying that, I have this opinion, this religion, and all these other things going on around us. Regardless, He is God, and you are accountable to Him. So do you think that though we may have a myriad of reasons for unbelief, that God will lighten the truth, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God? He doesn't lighten it. He's pursuing us in mercy. But he doesn't lighten it. Or the truth of Romans 1, that says, what can be known about God is plain to them, everybody, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all they, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, because, but became futile in their thinking. And their fullest hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Which is still going on today. So the point is this. Don't be confused over Jesus. Believe. Believe. So there's a story told that during the reign of Napoleon Bonaparte, that he was, you know, going about and examining his troops and making sure they were all as they needed to be. And as he was doing this, he accidentally dropped the bridle or the reins of his horse onto its neck, which communicated to it the wrong things. And at once, the horse began going into a gallop. And so as Bonaparte clung to the saddle, you know, a common soldier, he comes and he jumps right in front of the horse. And he grabs the reins, he settles the horse, and he gives back the reins respectfully to Bonaparte. So at this, Bonaparte, he, he tells the soldier, Much obliged to you, Captain. He wasn't a captain before, but he is now. <laughs> And at his word, instantly, this common soldier is made captain. Now the man, at hearing this, he didn't doubt the emperor. He believed him. And he saluted Napoleon and he asked, Of what regiment, sir, or sire? And so delighted by the soldier's continued kind of faith in Napoleon, Bonaparte said, of my guards, the closest to him that would guard him in his life. And then he went on his way. So immediately, what did the soldier do? Did he say, well, I don't know, you know. I don't know if what he said was really true. I'm just going to go continue being a foot soldier. No, he didn't do that. He took Napoleon at his word and he took action. And he took up his duty. And as the soldier approached the generals, 
They wondered, who is this guy, you know, coming, this common soldier coming? And they, so they ask him, fellow, what do you want here? And the, the soldier replies, well, this fella is a captain of the guard. And the generals, you know, of course, thought he was crazy. But then the soldier quickly reply, replied and he said, he's the one who said I was the captain, pointing to Napoleon. And at this, the, the generals hastily backtrack and they say, I ask your pardon, sir, I was not aware of it. And they take him at his word as well. And so also, we see something here of what believing in Christ is like. You and I, it is you and I taking God at his word It is like this soldier and these generals at the word of Napoleon, they believed. We have heard the word of God here and now believe. Take him at his word as you're called to do. Let us not be those who are confused this morning, but let us be those who believe. Trust Christ at His word. He is Him who is the Messiah, our Messiah, the Savior of the world. As the world, it lifts up all variety of alternative words. As Satan accuses and lies and deceives, believe the word of God this morning and take the word from your God who is God and believe it and act. That's how we are to respond to God's word. That's how they should have responded to God's word. And they're accountable for not responding to God's word in unbelief. So in the midst of this, so it is also that Jesus in verses 28 through 29, he responds by saying that the Father is no liar. The Father is no liar. So somewhat sarcastically, which he's kind of heralding to, because the word uh, proclaim here, it actually means cried out. So he's making a passioned statement there, impassioned statement. But he says, you know, something like this in verse 28, Oh, you know me, do you? You know where I come from, huh? And as he says that, we think, John chapter 1? You know? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it, you see the sarcasm there? Oh yeah, you know, you know where I'm from, do you? <laughs> so to their point, Jesus says that He is not here of His own. He came at the directive of the Father. And he who sent me is true, is what Jesus says, or real. So Jesus says, in other words, he's saying that the Father is real. While they claim Jesus comes on his own authority, he again and again points to his Father, the real Father, his real Father, the real person who has sent him. The Father is real. He is truly there, and it is Him who sent Him. So as the Father is real, Jesus is really the Messiah also. 
As the Father is real, Jesus has been really sent by the Father and was really standing before them as the one promised of old. Jesus is no fiction. He really walked the streets of Jerusalem. He really traveled through Galilee and Judea. And he's still, amazing enough, he still lives today. Really. So at this moment, he's at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Knowing you, seeing you, and seeing his world, and everything else. So friends, we need to know and see that we are living in God's world, right? We may be surrounded by our computers and TVs and smartphones and all variety of new technologies. I'm not saying those are bad. We may be growing and having a growing base of knowledge, yet the earth has not ceased for a moment to be God's footstool. It isn't that we are living in a world where God is not in control. It's that we have made our faith abstract. So non-real, so disconnected from the real world that we succumb to a non-faith kind of faith. Practical atheism is what it's called. And so... To this, let me urge you, don't believe in the abstract. We aren't here as the church because of tradition, because it's the thing to do, because our families have believed these things, because it's interesting, because it's an American-made gospel that we have come to. But if you believe and you really know Christ, you and I believe Because it's true. Not a fiction. It's not abstract. Every part of our lives then should be affected by Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of the throne of the Father. The God who is reigning over the world right now as election and everything else is going on. So, do you believe that even as all this is going on? Or is it just an abstract faith? I I grew up in church, you know, my parents were Christians, now I'm a Christian, I think, you know, and I was baptized, and, you know, I've been in the pew every time the door's been open. Or is it a real faith? You are taking this gospel into your life, into your heart, into your mind, into your marriage, into the raising up of your children, into your workplace into the world, and you're not just doing that. You are making disciples because you've been called to do that. Obeying your Lord at His word. Not an abstract faith. So we need to set our sights on the real, risen, living Christ who lives now, even now. Know that there are indeed spiritual powers At work all around us, there are angels and demons. Yes, there's war being fought. But God is God over all this. He is God over this year. He is God over this day. He is God over this hour. He knows you. 
He sees you, and he is calling you to hear his word and to believe it. And not in the abstract, but truly. And so we come then to verses 30 to 36. We see our third point here, that Jesus will return to the Father. Jesus will return to the Father. So in the midst of all that we were seeing in these verses, there's something of an irony that happens here. So the people, they are confused. You know, they're questioning. And now even trying to arrest him. Yet not one iota of what Jesus has said is in doubt. None of what they're doing is changing the truth of the matter. Even more than this, even as they try to arrest him, Jesus will not go to the cross until that hour comes. Though they may try to arrest him, it didn't, wouldn't, and couldn't happen until the hour appointed by the Father. So who's really in control here? As Pilate asks his questions of Jesus, and as you know, the, uh, the religious leaders come and question him and everything else, Who's really in control of all that's going on here? So an irony, and there's more. Even so, they are trying to arrest him. And again, the sad irony here is they are raising or rising up against the Savior they've been waiting for. So Jesus, he tells them, verses 33 and 34, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So more confusion ensues after this. What does he mean by this? Is he going to the Greeks and Gentiles? What in the world is he doing? Well, Jesus, he has two things he's pointing out here. One is general and one is terrifying. (laughs) By this phrase, where I am, you cannot come. First, he means they cannot literally go where he is going. To his cross. To his resurrection. And even to his ascension. They can't follow him there. That's his mission. But the terrifying part is that he's also condemning them. You want to continue in your unbelief. You will not be where I am. But they may kill him, but in their unbelief, what are they doing? They are striking, ironically again, their own death blow. Where I am, you cannot come. So he's setting before them and us the question, will you be with him? Jesus certainly desires that you be with him. If you Just everything we've talked about today in the Gospel of John, the mercy of God continually pursuing after you, there is no doubt that he wants you to be with him, that none would perish. But friends, the alternatives are plain this morning. 
be with Christ and know life, joy, peace, and glory forevermore. Or be a part in the source of life, joy, peace, and glory forevermore. And you might be like I used to be, you know. I used to balk at all these things, you know, all this religious talk and all this talk about Jesus and the Bible and church. Those guys are just crazy people. That's the way I I looked at Christians. And you may think you're just fine going about your days saying all will be just fine. God will understand in the end. You heard that before. I'll answer whoever is there on the other side when I get there. I'll figure it out when I get on the other side what's going on. You know, I'm sure that nothing will happen when I die. You know, it all just will be over. And then, contrast, but. But then, death comes. And there and then you find that your excuses and your reasonings were wrong. And you will not go on to an abstract hell. You won't think, man, I wish I would have had, I wish people would have preached less about hell and God's judgment in my sin. You won't be thinking that. You will know that it's all true. You will know that the pleading was real And serious pleading for your soul. So listen now. Know the warnings are real warnings. Know now hell is a real place where real people who die in their sins will go to really be punished forever, separated from the God who made them for himself. So, friends. Do consider now your own soul. Do trust in Jesus. Don't be confused. Don't believe in the abstract. Do trust in Jesus. Unbelief is not neutral. It's worthy of God's judgment in God's world. And so this morning as I close, hear the call from God to faith in Christ. To look to Him who came. Who came. Let me say it again. Who came to save you. He acted. Not you. Not me. To pay for your sins. So look to Him who died and rose again that you might rise also to newness of life in Him. Let's pray. Father, we come humbled, Lord. Oh, Father, help our unbelieving hearts. Which is so characteristic not of everyone out there, but even of us who know Christ, it was characteristic of us and is no longer to be characteristic of us. So all of us come humbled, Lord, before your word, realizing that we all need you. We need the one who has come, Jesus the Messiah, Christ the Lord.
Lord of lords and who is over all things. Yet he condescended in love. And he would come and demonstrate his love in dying on the cross and bearing your wrath in our place. Our punishment in our place. Bearing the wrath that we deserve in our place. So let us glory in Christ if we know him this morning. If you know him this morning, may your heart rejoice in him and take him at his word. Father, help us to take you at your word. Help us to believe all of it and let it just impact everything about us. That Jesus is our Lord, even friend. We thank you and we pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you this morning. They are lost. They are confused. They do not believe. Pray that even now that they would see their unbelief is no excuse. That their unbelief, even in their unbelief, you still came. You still, Father, you sent your son Jesus into the world to save them. And you will. We pray that if they don't believe you even now, they would trust in Christ. They would believe. And they would believe that Christ died for them personally. For their sins, their debts, their record of wrong. But that record of wrong could be nailed to the cross. And Jesus on their behalf would stand in their place. So may they look to him even now and believe and repent and turn to him. And so, Father, we pray that you give us grace as we sing this next song in our time this morning together. Help us to consider our faith. Help us consider if we have faith and help us not to have an abstract faith. May you work in us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.